0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, for the last two weeks, we've been studying what has been, often been titled the Lord's Prayer, or as Paul said here a couple of weeks ago, it really should be titled the Disciples' Prayer, because this is how disciples are to pray when they talk to God. It is the instruction that Jesus gave on two separate occasions to his disciples as a pattern for how to pray. And in the first week, uh, we we spent time meditating on the opening line of this short pattern for prayer. We, We focused on our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And we talked about the role of adoration in our prayer life, we discover that God invites us to closeness and to reverence. We're instructed to come to God as a Father, not as a, a, a sort of distant deity off in the, the nether regions who's completely detached from humanity, but a Father who loves us and is intimately acquainted with our needs, with our desires, and wants to hear our voice. Yet, at the same time, he's also the infinitely wise God in heaven who creates everything that exists and rules over everything that has been created. And after the teaching, each week we have been... uh, undertaking a practice as a part of it that is us praying together as we've been instructed by jesus not just hearing his words but also being doers and so after the teachings are over we've been gathering together in small groups to pray with one another and to take seriously the words of jesus praying in community praying together then the following week uh we 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 spent Praying in the morning and in the evening. We've given you guys a, a practice to take home with a prayer prompt for the morning and one for the evening. So that we together as a community of faith can be praying and, and deepening our sense that this is not just only about me and the Lord. It is us together following Jesus, growing as disciples and being the people of God so we did the same last week as we focused on the next sentence in the prayer of Jesus the one that says your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and we learned that Jesus is teaching us that an aspect to prayer that is important is this idea of surrender we are to long for, to want, to desire at the deepest parts of our being the will of God to be done in our own personal lives, in the body of Christ, in his church, and ultimately in the world around us. More than that, we're not just to long for it, but we're, we're instructed by Jesus through this teaching right here that we're supposed to vocalize that to God. To tell him, we want your will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We're supposed to vo- vocalize our desire for all things to be surrendered to the Father. And we're encouraged to desire to live as a visual representation of the kingdom of God here on earth. By praying, our Father in heaven, your kingdom Come, your will be done. We're saying, let it be done in me right now. Let, me, let my life be a tangible demonstration of what it is that the kingdom of God will look like when it comes in fullness. May they see it lived out in me now, presently. So we're not just to think about it or theorize about it we're not just to vocalize it and request it but we're to ask god to make that the lived reality of our lives presently as has been stated by so many theologians the church is to be is to be a kingdom outpost where the reign of god is made visible in the lives of his people And so then, for the last week, we've been praying morning and evening, surrendering ourselves to God, if you've been tracking with us, 6.30 in the morning, 8.30 at night, together as a body saying, Lord, I surrender to you all of life. Use my words, use my body to express your love to the world around you. Use my works, use the church Use the, the kingdom of God, this outpost that is here right now, to, to demonstrate what your kingdom will look like for all of eternity. Show the world who you are through us. And we've, we've been praying that every morning and every evening for the last week, that God would make his kingdom visible in the lives of his people Now this week we turn our attention to this idea not just of adoration and not just of surrender but also to supplication, supplication. Now supplication simply means a humble request, it's like like a subject petitioning their king for resources. It's coming to to the king in reverence for his authority and and with the knowledge that he, he has everything. And he has all of the power and all of the resources at his hand and saying, God, you, I, you know that these are the needs that I have and I'm coming to you so that you might meet these needs. And this portion of the prayer comes from verses 11 through 12. It outlines a communal request for God to meet our practical and our spiritual needs for life. It simply says this, give us this day Our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I want to draw us out for just a moment to to, to think about the reality of how we're put together. You know, the Bible opens with the story of creation and it uses wonderful, beautiful, poetic language and stanzas to portray the power and the majesty of a God who created all things. And then when the song of creation ends, it tells us of the creation of the first man. And there's this, again, this sort of poetic beauty to what is happening, to the reality of of what the Bible says mankind was first formed out of. Do Do you remember what it says there? It says that he was formed out of the dust of the ground and that he was made in the image of God and that when God breathed into his nostrils, this dirt clod on the earth became a living soul. It is the image of a formed figure made from clay lying lifeless in a garden. Lifeless until something eternal and divine intervened. And the breath of God was imparted to the clay and man became a living soul. Mankind was partly terrestrial and partly celestial. Dust of the earth and breath of God. Made to bear his image, made to mirror his likeness and and this would also form the basis of mankind's needs. He would need physical nourishment for the terrestrial world that he was created in. To be connected and grounded to the earth. And he would draw life and resource from the earth around him. But he would also have spiritual needs since a part of his being was not simply physical only. It was also an impartation from God. And so here in our portion of scripture today, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray for both needs, to bring supplication for both spheres. He teaches them that they're to bring their concerns, their personal needs, and their desires to the one who made mankind and loves them. They're to bring them to their father. Now our outline today for those of you who are note takers or those who are following along in the app is fairly simple. It goes like this. Together we are to bring, verse 11, communal supplication, also verse 11, practical supplication and verse 12, spiritual supplication. I know it's a total surprise that I have three points, but here they are. So let's focus first of all on communal supplication. For me this is, these outlines are a way of helping to organize my thoughts so that I, I can kind of track along with the logic of scripture as we begin to make our way through it. And so I, I want to focus on this, this first part, this reality of communal supplication. Let's consider the reality of Jesus' instruction to bring these requests communally or together. Now this is the whole reason that we've called this series Together. I mean, all throughout this teaching on prayer, when you, when you really begin to break it down and look at it, there is an underlying assumption being made by Jesus. Have you picked up on it? You know what that assumption is? It's that his people would be praying together. That's what he assumes. Now, if you're, if you're a person who likes to mark or, or highlight your Bible, and I, I hope that you are, uh, by the way... There's something about having a physical Bible. Like I know we live in the digital age; we all work off of our phones, and that, 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 that's great. But there's something about having a physical Bible, marking it up with your notes, and it it builds on itself over time to where your Bible becomes its own sort of commentary. Because you've taken notes through, through studies that you've done, through Bible studies that you've been a part of, or sitting there in church. And next thing you know, you get 20 years down the road with the same Bible and you have this incredible resource at your fingertips as you take notes on the scriptures. So I encourage you, please, please do that. But I want you to, to, to notice here, if you're a person who annotates your Bible, I want you to notice that there are nine plural references. And out of those nine plural nouns... Six of them occur in the verses that we are considering today. Notice verse nine, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil notice that jesus assumes that when we pray that we will not just be praying privately in our prayer closets but that we will be praying together communally as a body of believers Now, I want you to consider these two things from the fact that we're to bring communal supplication before God. When we come together, I want you to notice really two things. When we come together, notice the priority of people and the priority of prayer. The priority of people and the priority of prayer. Listen, the church is pictured as a family, a flock, a bride, a holy priesthood, the body of Christ. We are meant to function in togetherness, not separateness. There's a priority that's placed on people being together and sharing their lives, sharing their hearts with God and with one another. And there's a priority on prayer. The church is meant to have conversation together with God this does not exclude personal prayer but God expects us also to pray together he expects that he assumes that that's what kind of community we will be and what we will practice together so let's consider for the for for a moment the first part the, the priority of people have you ever stopped to ask yourself what does God want us to do as his people uh, maybe you're like me, I, I grew up around the church, I didn't get saved until until I was uh, a little bit older, I was 19 when I, I came to the Lord, uh, but I grew up around church culture, right, in the 80s and the 90s, and, and and during that time it was all about programming and having a cool place, That was that was the big deal in the 80s and 90s. Churches were all about programming and having a cool place, make sure you have a good VBS, uh, maybe a great awana program. Uh, your your youth group needed a really edgy name like like grounded or or rooted or uh, the tribe or the well or or fuego. Right? Like you had to have some sort of trendy name for your your youth group. Uh, People really wanted to be trendy and hip and so uh, your worship team needed to be high quality. You needed to have like the best worship leaders that could compete in the contemporary worship scene. Your aesthetic really needed to be on point too because people can only worship God in beautiful places. And so you've got to make sure that your aesthetic is on point, that there's like waterfalls and, you know, really beautiful uh, architecture and everything. And and listen, I'm not saying that those things are wrong. Those are wonderful ways to honor God, but they're not the focal point of why God gathers his people. The modern criteria for what makes a good church rarely ever focuses on the qualities that God says are to be present in the church. To this day, uh, these are things that I still hear from people as they look for a place to fellowship. Well, what's the worship team like? And what's this? And I, how's the place look? And, you know, what? Those are the things we're considering? How about the spiritual health and vitality of the people that go there? How about the qualified and biblical leadership of those that are called to shepherd and protect the flock of God. How about those things? Are those good measurements? How about the quality of teaching from the scriptures? Those are the things that we should be focused on. Have you ever considered the things in scripture that God uses to describe what his church would be like? When God describes the church throughout the scriptures, he does not describe a program or a place. He describes A people. A people whose lives are integrated with one another on a more intimate level. Matter of fact, let me give you just a few examples from scripture of the things that God says about his church. He calls them the family in heaven and on earth. I love that. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. For this reason, Paul prays, he says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He calls us the flock of God, First Peter 5, 2, as he instructs the elders, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but be of ready mind. We are called the bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 7, chapter 21, verse 9, Ephesians chapter 5, the bride of Christ and of the Lamb. We are called a royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. How about that as a description for a church? Probably one of the most beautiful, expansive descriptions of the church comes to us from the book of Ephesians where Paul describes the church as the body of Christ. Let me read to you his words from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of, grow so that it builds itself up in love okay now think about that picture here we are all of us individual sort of parts of the body of Christ but we are connected by what by the spirit of God and we are directed by what by the spirit of God by the word of God and Jesus as the head of the body directs animates gives life to expresses his heart his desires through us those who are attached to him by the spirit executing his will on the earth that is a beautiful picture and god says that's what the church is to be together none of these things sound like a program do they None of these sound like a place to go, do they? Each of these descriptions of God's church carries, a, it carries relational implications. These are metaphors for the church that are ways of getting at how we are to function together, how we're to be connected to one another. We are, we're to function like a family with a good father. We're we're, we're to function like a flock taking direction and receiving affection, being protected by the shepherd. We're to function like a priesthood linking people with their God and offering sacrifices of worship to God. We are to function like a body that takes its direction and expresses the will of the head of the body, which is Christ. That's how God describes the church. It's not a place that we attend. It is a people that we are. And we function in a way of relating with God and with one another by being connected, mutually sharing, and walking obediently in the will of Jesus Christ. Now, if we're going to be a church that looks like what the New Testament describes... It will take more than simply attendance to a building. Don't you think? If we're, if we're going to take seriously the words of scripture, it'll, it'll take real connection with one another. It'll take using the great strengths that you have individually and that we have collectively as a body of believers and leveraging those great strengths for the glory of God. The description of, of church life in the scriptures is one where every person takes the gifts, the skills, and the, the talents that God has given them and uses them to build up and to equip the people around them so that the whole body of Christ is growing in maturity. We're supplying what is needed to one another and we're growing in the likeness of Christ as a consequence, as a result of that. The people of the kingdom... Behaving like the king of the kingdom. Giving their lives to one another. This is how the body builds itself up in love. And, and, and there, guys, there's so many ways that this gets communicated throughout the scriptures. I think of Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, where you, you get this list of, of, of ways to relate to one another. He says, older men, be like noble Be self-controlled. Show the younger man what it looks like to be mature. Older women, instruct the younger women. Teach them how to do life. Younger men, instruct one another. Encourage one another. Provoke one another. Younger women, encourage and strengthen each other leveraging their gifts and their talents, they're supposed to build up the body of Christ in love. Listen, we need more and more of this kind of connection in the body of Christ to continue to grow and mature and become like Jesus. We need Pauls and Timothys. We need Barnabas's and John Marks. We need couples like Priscilla and Aquila who opened up their home and brought in Apollos. Trained him in the scriptures so that he would be equipped to go out and become one of the greatest evangelists in the early church. We need people who open their lives and their homes to one another, one another and leverage their strengths to shape and equip and help those who are around them. Life on life sharing is where discipleship really happens. Now, you m- might be thinking, yeah, yeah, I, I, I know wh- how that happens. That happens in small groups, right? Small groups is where that takes place. That's what those are for. True. But supplying enough small groups to meet the needs of our church has had challenges. Not everyone is able to open their home. Not everyone is able to, to meet the needs of, of facilitating a group. And not everybody feels qualified or able to do those things. And so, as a consequence here at Heritage, you know, we've we've had small groups for a while and and it's been difficult to open enough spaces for every person to get in. a matter of fact, we have had a waiting list for a long time of people who are waiting, hoping that somebody in a group dies <laughs> so that they can have a spot to be in a small group. Or, you know, moves or something, right? Like, Jesus, please just... Take them home so that I can be a part of that. They obviously obviously want to be close to you. See, here's the thing. Small groups are just a tool. They're just a tool. They're they're a way to, to establish connection. But we are called to be connected. You know, this is what I love about some of the things that I see God stirring up by the Holy Spirit in our church right now. Uh, Paul mentioned to you guys a while ago that Jacob Cook and his huddle group have been working on something that's really cool for our church. Uh, they've been having discussions in their group about the need for people to connect with one another, and to connect with those who are maybe just a little bit further down the road than them in maturity, and, and to learn from one another, not just hear sermons or you know, Google stuff, but to sit down with a brother or a sister who's a little bit ahead of them in life and say, hey, tell me how you developed this really strong prayer life that you have. Hey, would you show me how to lead my kids? I haven't really figured out how to do this parenting thing well and I see that you're doing that well. Would you show me how to do that? Matter of fact, the, the, the gals in Jacob's group uh, have expressed how many times they wish that they just had someone a little further ahead in life to talk to and get advice from about everything from singleness to being a wife to being a mom, F- following Jesus in a vocational setting. How do I, how do I have a professional life and, and still make my life in Christ a priority? How, what does that look like? And that's why this group has said, you know, we want to see opportunities for people in the body of Christ to connect with a mentor, to be mentored by someone else. Uh, Jacob and I, actually, we were texting back and forth this morning. I, I wrote down what he said because I just thought it was so good. He said it's something that really resonates with me. He said this. In the modern wor- world, it's really easy to feel alone these days. The body of Christ is a gift And it's one we get to participate in as a gift to others. One of the coolest things about mentorship is that you can make a meaningful impact on someone's life just by being yourself, flaws and all. You don't have to have some great spiritual acuity or have all of the areas of your life in order. You can be strong in one way and weak in others and you can take the strength that God's given you and you can leverage it to say, hey, I want to show you what God's invested in me so that you can grow too. I want to help you move a little bit further down the road. Stand on my shoulders. I want to do for you what maybe I wish somebody had done for me. Or maybe it's something that somebody has done for me. And I want to pass that on. If you are on our church center app, I want to, I want to let you know how you can become a part of this. You can go down to uh, the groups slide on the app. If you are looking at that, you can see here. Oh, hey, there we go. Down at the bottom, you see there's groups. Groups. Um, if you click on that, you'll see that there's an option for mentorship. And if you say, hey, you know what? God has given me some strengths. I have, I have the ability to, to, I've got a really strong devotional life. Or I've figured out how, how business and a life of faith intermix. And how to do those things. Or if I, I, I'm really great at spiritual disciplines. There's, that's one of those areas like fasting is consistent for me. I, I regularly withdraw for, for silence and solitude. I get to spend time uh, with God in that way. And I enjoy it. I love being around it. If that's something that you want to impart to others, you can mentor someone else within the body. You, you might say, hey, I, I don't really feel qualified. I don't, I don't have it all together. That's Okay. We aren't looking for people who have it all together. We're looking for people who are willing to take the areas of strength that they have and to share it with others. You can glorify God in business. You, you've figured out some tricks about raising kids, stewardship, overcoming addictions, building up a devotional life, experimenting with spiritual disciplines, silence, solitude, keeping your prayer life, communication with others. There's so many ways that you can take your strengths. And share them with somebody else. So if you want to take what God has invested in you and share it with someone else, here's your opportunity. You can sign up to be a mentor right here on our app. And what will happen is that it's a little bit like... Um, oh, I don't, this is a terrible analogy and, and I hesitate to even say this. But it's a little bit like Christian Tinder. right? Mm, that's a terrible... Christian Mingle, ChristianMingle.com, right? You can go on, you can see mentors and you go, hey, this person is maturing in an area that I'm struggling with right now. And I want to go on and connect with this person. And and that person has said, hey, I want to give up, you know, six hours of my month in two-hour sessions or one-hour sessions to meet with somebody and share with them the things that I've learned from the Lord. And I'd love to mentor them. And so you can... Pick a mentor, connect with them, and they'll be trained for how to equip you. So if you want to be a mentor, you're sitting here and you're going, man, that sounds awesome. I would love to share my life in that way. If you're you're sitting here right now and the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction to your heart, you're going, I would love for God to use my gifts and my abilities in this way. Get on the app. Get signed up, Get, figure this out. Get connected with people that could use your great strengths and your great good gifts because God has given them to you for a reason, for a purpose. So, as we come to the text today, we see that our life is to be a together life. That we are to live communally together, connected to one another. This app and small groups and small Bible studies that you're a part of and coffee with a friend, these are all just ways to integrate our lives together so that we might build each other up and grow as the body of Christ in the likeness of Christ Jesus. Now, you also remember I said I want you to think about the priority of people and how people are to be connected. I want you to also think about the priority of Prayer. The church is meant to have conversation together with God. Now this doesn't exclude personal, private, prayer closet type of prayer. But God expects us all to pray together. This idea of God's people gathering together and talking to God as a family is kind of a big deal to God. I don't know if you know that. Perhaps you might remember the couple of occasions where Jesus got super angry Remember what that issue was over? Remember when he started whipping people? Tossing tables? Screaming? Looking crazy? Jesus, our Savior? Do you remember what provoked that in him? Let let me read to you what it was like the day that Jesus walked into the temple like Conor McGregor, just... Right? Like, he goes in... To kick some butt. He's planned it out. He's thought about it. And he goes in angry on purpose. He tosses tables. And let me let me read to you. Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. The guys who were selling birds, he kicks their chairs over so they don't have a place to sit anymore. Right? He's angry. Driving people out of the temple. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. A couple things to take note of as we consider the heart of God for his people to pray together. God assumes that his people will do it together. Not just in in, in prayer closets. Number two. This is one of the key purposes for God's people to gather according to the scriptures. Matter of fact, Jesus here is quoting from the Old Testament. This is consistent with Old Testament values and New Testament values. It's not just like we became a house of prayer after Jesus came. No, he's, he's contending, this has been the plan of God all along. That God's people would gather together, that they would talk to God, that they would share their hearts with God, and that they would do that together. That was God's plan from the beginning. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, where it says, my house will be a house of prayer for all peoples, or other translations, all nations. Jeremiah chapter 7, 11 is the other half of the verse that he quotes. He says, has this house which has been called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So both Isaiah and Jeremiah highlighting the same thing that Jesus is highlighting. This has always been the plan of God that God's people would gather together and pray. That in our communal life we would talk to God. Third thing I want you to take note of. God is zealous for this to happen. He is zealous for this to happen. This same Jesus who, who taught us to turn the other cheek built a whip to cleanse the temple. Not just on one occasion, but two separate times he went in and started whipping people. Want to offend God? Do you want to irritate Jesus? Turn the house of prayer into something else. Turn it into a marketplace where where goods are bought and sold. Turn it into a library where the main commodity is the exchange of theological information. Turn it into a TED Talk where the goal is to give intellectual tidbits that feed people's appetites. Turn it into a carnival where the focus is entertainment rather than God's people drawing near to him to share their hearts. You want to irritate God? Keep it from being a house of prayer. That's what makes God angry. Listen, it matters to God that we gather. It matters to God that we are together. And it matters to God that we pray together. This is how God designed the church to exist. One of the ways that Jesus taught us to pray is by bringing our supplications to God. As we move on through the text here, we see that we're to bring practical supplication or requests from verse 11. We're to bring our practical needs as well as our emotional and our spiritual needs. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. We have the daily need for that which sustains life. You know, bread in the ancient world was a staple for survival. So when we are taught by Jesus to ask for bread, it is a sort of metaphor for the practical and physical needs of life to be met this includes not just food for the body and the needs of a household it also encompasses the full needs of humans in all their dimensions body and soul i love what john wesley said john wesley said all things necessary for your body and your soul physical gifts of bread spiritual gifts of grace and satisfaction of relationship with god These are the needs of the human. For Wesley and for so many other Christian thinkers throughout the ages, the idea of asking God for bread meant, Lord, I'm coming to you for all things needful for me. That's the idea. We're made to live constantly, coming to God as the supplier of all resources. In fact, it's really interesting. If you look at the Greek translation of the phrase daily bread, it could also be rendered the bread of tomorrow. And and that really, that that harkens back to the, the Old Testament where the Israelites were so dependent upon God that they waited for bread to come down in the morning and supply their need. It was manna for this moment that kept them focused on right now, Lord, you supply daily what I need God, I'm coming to you for this resource. And so, we're made to live constantly coming to God as the supplier of all resources. Like the manna given to the Israelites, we are to bring requests for what is enough for the day i i love what solomon says in proverbs chapter 30 verses seven through nine listen to this listen to what solomon says here this this prayer this request of the lord he says two things i ask of you deny them not to me before i die remove far from me falsehood and lying give me neither poverty nor riches Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Give me just what is perfect for me, Lord. That's my request. Listen, God has made us dependent on purpose. Did you know that? You know, one of the the things that I'll do sometimes is is whenever I go to pray for food, I, 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 I like to just... Pull back just a little bit and go, okay, what am I doing here? You know, praying over a meal, that can be a very kind of like traditional thing. Sometimes you're, if you're really hungry, you're just trying to get through it. Like, Lord bless this food in Jesus' name, amen. Right? You're just like, let's get to the other side. I'm, I'm starving. But something happens when you, when you pause for just a moment and you begin to really ponder things. So oftentimes when I'm praying over food, I will remind myself that I am not a farmer. And yet, here it is food on the table and this happened because God caused the sun to shine and the rain to fall and the crops to grow and he put it in the heart of a farmer to do what he does with skill and he put it in the heart of a truck driver to drive it to the grocery store and he put it in the heart of a businessman to build a store where people could have their needs met and supplied. And all of this is the extravagant wisdom of God to provide for all of humanity. And this is all happening miraculously. How do plants grow? We don't know. It just does stuff. It's like sunlight, awesome, dirt, Wonderful, water, I guess I'll grow food. It's miraculous how this stuff happens. It is the direct provision of God that causes us to receive these realities. We are all far more dependent upon God than we realize. And when we pray, when we come to him and we say, Father, give us this day our daily bread, we acknowledge those reality, Those realities. We bring our requests to God, our practical, our emotional, our spiritual needs, and they are to be presented to the one who has authority and resources and power to provide it all. So we come to him with practical supplication in prayer, praying for our needs, praying for the things that we desire offering up our hearts to him, living in dependence upon him. And lastly, we also bring our spiritual supplication from verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we, as, as we have also forgiven our debtors. We come to God asking for forgiveness. Now, this is something that is clearly taught throughout the scriptures. In places like 1 John, it's explicitly stated. As a matter of fact, if we say that we have no sin, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. We're supposed to regularly come to God and confess our sins to him. That's a regular practice. But did you know that it's not just a private practice? It's also a communal one. Matter of fact, confession throughout the scriptures takes different forms. Confession can be personal. That is, God, I have sinned. I recognize I've violated your commands, your law. I have not represented your heart in this way. Here's my responsibility for that. Please forgive me. Thank you for your grace. It can be personal, but it can also be communal. Lord, as a church, we have ignored the poor. As a church, we have not fought for righteousness. As a church, we have neglected this thing or that thing. It it can be communal as a body. It also can be national. There are plenty of times where throughout the scriptures, a whole country repents. A whole nation repents. I think of Jonah and Nineveh, right? Where an entire people group says, okay, you're right, we're wrong. We violated your law. We deserve your judgment. Please forgive us. And God has responded with grace and forgiveness. But we're called to confess our sin and bring those things to the Father to get our spiritual needs met. But that's not what is challenging about this portion of scripture right here. This one little verse that probably we all wish wasn't there. What makes this section difficult is the words that Jesus used. And then he backs it up in verses 14 and 15. He says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Okay, here, let me me break that down for you just a little bit. It's like this. In the same way that you have forgiven us, we know we are supposed to forgive others. Or you you could even flip-flop it. Treat us the way we treat others. That's painful, right? Give to us the same kind of forgiveness that we have given out. (laughs) That is like, that should cut us a little bit. And it's meant to cut us a little bit. It's meant to confront us with this reality. St. Augustine called this request the terrible petition. Paul reminded me of this. He got this out of Kent Hughes' commentary. On page 188, he says this. This is the terrible petition because he realized that if we pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors with an unforgiving heart, we're actually asking God not to forgive us for debts. And debts here really means sins. Ooh. C.S. Lewis had this comment. No part of his teaching is clear. There are no exceptions to it. He does not say that we are to forgive other people's sins, provided that they are not too frightful, or provided they are, there are extenuating circumstances or anything of that sort. We are to forgive them all, however spiteful, however mean, however often they are repeated. And if we don't, we shall be forgiven none of our sins. He said, wait, no, no, wait a minute. That's not what it's saying here. Okay, let me read to you the words of Jesus in verses 14, and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, here's the thing about being a pastor and a teacher. Sometimes you just want to soften things a little bit. You want to get to a passage like this and you want to go, in the Greek, it doesn't really mean this thing. But there's nothing I can do here. These are the words of Christ. Just straight up. And we all have to wrestle with that reality. When we ask for forgiveness, we are expected to give others what we have received from God. There are many debts you ever think about how absolutely sinful sin is to god think about all that's happened in the world how did that how did we get to a place where there's wars and murders and rapes and and terrible awful crimes are committed throughout the world how did we get there one act of rebellion in the garden of eden eating a piece of fruit And everything else came as a consequence. How awful is sin to God? How terrible is it to to him? And how does it indebt us collectively and individually to God? You know, here's the craziest thing about the sovereignty of God, if you think about it. The craziest thing about the sovereignty of God, when I say sovereignty, I mean God's authority to rule over everything. The craziest thing about the sovereignty of God is that sin is permitted to exist. He is allowing that right now. He could squash it any moment that he wanted to. He could rectify the situation at this moment if he wanted to. Snap his fingers, goodbye universe. He could eradicate... All sin. He could erase the presence of every consequence of the fall. And as rebels, we have all participated in violating the will of God. We have all been his enemies. We have all participated in that sin. Psalm 130 famously says this, Lord, if you should mark our iniquities, who could stand? If you took us to account for our sins, not a single human would be left. That's the reality. And in the sovereignty of God, He has permitted it to exist right now. We are under His grace right now. Probably the greatest illustration of this in the teaching of Jesus comes to us in Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 to 27. It's called the parable of the unforgiving servant. And it's this story that Jesus tells where he talks about this servant who, who owed so much money you can't even calculate it. Ridiculous amount of money. He owed it all, right? And he gets he gets thrown in debtor's prison and, and he, he starts begging, please, please, I'll, I'll pay you every cent. Please forgive me. And, and the master of that servant says, Okay, I'll be gracious to you and I'll just forgive you the debt. Then that servant, he leaves and he goes and he finds somebody that owes him a month's wages. And he begins to beat that servant and throws him in debtor's prison and tells him he won't get out until he's paid every cent. After he's just been forgiven a ridiculous amount of money. So the Lord of that servant... Hold him up short. Listen. Extravagant forgiveness has been given to us. And holding the debts of others is an offense to the gift of forgiveness that has been given to us. If you look at the context around this portion of the prayer you have in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. They will be shown mercy mercy you look at the first or the the following verses of jesus when he he says here if you forgive others their trespasses your father will forgive you but if you don't i won't james chapter 2 verse 13 judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful i love what charles spurgeon says he says unless you've forgiven others when you pray this prayer you read your own death warrant When you repeat the Lord's Prayer. Think about that. Think about that reality. All of us as believers are meant to extend the radical forgiveness that we've been given. Like Jesus on the cross, we are instructed to say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This is radical forgiveness, radical grace being displayed through the prayers of the saints, through the lives that they live. And when they pray like this, they are expressing and living out the heart of Jesus. They are growing in his likeness. God, I want to have this kind of heart the same way that you've been gracious to me and forgiven me. I want to forgive every person in my life. I don't want to carry any debts forward. You are the righteous judge. But I want to hold on to nothing as though I sit in your seat. And I entrust it all to you. Now, forgiveness doesn't mean reconciliation, doesn't mean trusting, doesn't mean there aren't still consequences for sin. Absolutely, all of those things are true. But forgiveness means I will not hold this over your head as though I am the judge of the universe, extracting payment from you. I'm letting it go because of what God has done for me. So, in summary, in prayer, we come together. We come together to God with our supplications. He is the supplier of our physical and spiritual resources. He meets our human needs. He gives to us so that we can give to others. Now, because we believe this is true, I'm going to invite the band to come back up for uh, to close here in worship. Because we believe that Jesus said what he meant, we're now going to move into a time of prayer and worship. Uh, If you haven't grabbed communion cups, there's some up here, there's some uh, in the back, there's some outside the door if you want to grab communion cups. But I want to invite you to gather into small groups of no more than maybe three or four people. And, and to just spend time in prayer. Teresa's going to lead us into sort of four movements of prayer. At the end of that time, if you want to take communion with that group, you can take communion with that group. If you want to do it on your own, you can do it on your own. But this is a time of prayer and coming together before God in, in prayer and in worship. Uh, so take uh, take what's the word I'm looking for take advantage there we go take advantage of this opportunity to be together it's a it's a time to be uh, what Jesus has said uh, for the church that we would be a house of prayer so would you begin to gather in groups as we as we pray together I'm going to pray for you real quick father thank you for your word Thank you for the opportunity to be a house of prayer. Thank you for the the privilege of being connected to one another, to being established by your spirit and growing in your likeness because of what you supply through through one another. Continue to shape us. And Lord, if there are here this morning debts that are unforgiven, If there's bitterness and resentment, anger, frustration that we are hanging on to that needs to be let go of this morning, we we need to account it as having been paid for by your son. Identify those things by your spirit so that we might be free, so that our hearts might be pure. Shape us through this time of praying, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.